episode of the Higher Ed Shift, Harlow and I discuss the state of the federal student loan portfolio and two great uncertainties facing students who hold those federal loans. There is a lot of discussion and debate about ending the loan repayment pause that started nearly 18 months ago as COVID relief and is set to expire at the end of September. This is made even more difficult by the recent announcement that two of the current federal loan servicers will not renew their contracts at the end of the year. This could cause some bumps in the road for students as they re-enter repayment on those loans. Add to this the ongoing debate of student loan forgiveness, whether it can or will happen, and how much should or could be forgiven. Both are complicated topics made only more difficult by the political nature of the discussion and the polarization of both conversations. Join us as we jump into the debate and talk about how we can potentially streamline some of the processes and opportunities to ensure that students can smoothly move back into repayment. Welcome to this episode of the Higher Ed Shift, where Carlo and I wanted to have a bit of a deeper discussion about the state of student loans and everything that is going on with the payment pause that will be ending in the coming months, all the way through to federal student debt forgiveness, which has obviously been in in the national media a lot. And so it really felt timely for us to to talk about the current state of the system, especially since in the last couple of of weeks, I guess, we've heard that two of the national servicers of student loans have decided to to withdraw. Um, So Carlo, let's start by sharing a little bit of information with listeners, you know, a level set about the student loan portfolio. How big is it? What's the state of the current loan portfolio? What's that snapshot really look like? Well, first of all, thanks for having me back again, Amy. I feel very, I feel like the most special guest on the show. It feels good to be back. Thanks for coming back. I I feel pretty special that you were willing to come back for round two. You will notice that there is someone who didn't who will remain nameless. We'll talk about him later. Yes, we will. And make fun of him. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Hey, good question. What what, what does the student loan space look like before we even dive into this, right? So uh, let's, let's think big numbers. Uh, you know, about $1.6, $1.7 trillion in outstanding federal student loan debt. Um, you know, not all that debt is in repayment, right? A lot of those dollars are held by people who are still in school. They're still borrowing. They're still enrolled, right? So not every dollar is actually uh, in a monthly payment option. But yeah, $1.6, $1.7 trillion, uh, about... Um, about a third of borrowers who are in repayment have um, are in some kind of income-based income contingent repayment program, which means their monthly payment is tied to some fraction of their income. There's a bunch of different payment options. So I think today there's probably around 15 or 16 different payment plans that any borrower can be in at any given point in time, depending on how much they borrowed, depending on whether they're still part of that legacy old bank-based lending program for some of those folks who are now probably in their 40s or even 50s who still got their loans through Sally Mae or Wells Fargo or Bank of America. I think the median payment is around 230 bucks a month. And I think the average payment is around $380 a month. I 
you look at it. So, so not, uh, not insignificant, but also, you know, still, still lower than the typical new car payment, I think. But yep. again, we're talking about 41 million people that are in repayment today. So that's a lot of people that are having to manage student loan payments, driving down their balance, figuring out how to cover that obligation every month, you know, when, when, when they're not in the middle of a pandemic. Right. But when, when you, when you talk about that, that, that number of students in repayment isn't really accurate and reflective of the current state that we're in, because the majority of students have had the opportunity to postpone those payments over the last 18 months due to COVID. And so, so I think, I think about that and I combine that with that announcement that we, you know, I had mentioned at the beginning about those two major loan servicers that are not going to renew their contract. I'm really wondering if we can gain any insights into the idea of loan forgiveness from the fact that we we have these two servicers who choose are choosing not to renew their contracts. And to me, I start I start asking three questions. Is this an indicator that loan forgiveness isn't going to happen? Is servicing just too complicated, expensive? Um, are they being held to this impossible standard given the complexity and confusion of the loan repayment options that you mentioned? Or are servicers just fearful kind of of an anti-servicer stance of our of our new leadership? What do you what yeah. do you think? No, there's just some there's there's some good questions there. And maybe before we jump into forgiveness, right? Like we should think about what you said at the top, which is like, there's a payment pause that's supposed to come to an end in around 70 Mm -hmm. days, right? Like somehow we're supposed to turn the repayment spigot back on for all 41 million of these borrowers in in roughly two months time. And so the fact that you have two large servicers who effectively said, hey, uh, we're calling it quits at the end of the calendar year. Uh, You know, we'll do what we can to help transition and help Ed, the Department of Education, figure out how to place those accounts with different servicers. But that's a pretty monumental disruption when you think about the fact these two servicers by most press reports covered around 10 million accounts. So that's 10 million students who are 10 million student borrowers who have not been making payments largely for the past 18 months. And even when they do start to make their payments again, uh, they're not going to be getting correspondence from the same group that they've been corresponding with before they had COVID. So now they're suddenly going to have to interact with somebody new and new people and new businesses mean new policies and new communication methods. And you can just see the communication quagmire that's going to come from all of this. Absolutely. I, I, I agree with you on that. However, what I will say is this is not the first and only time that students have ever had a pause in their payments. And the idea that we can't figure out how to restart payments, when you look on the direct lending website about payment options, there are at least 10 different forms of forbearance and deferment options that are already available, have been for a really long time because they were available when I first got my loans right. and that wasn't, that wasn't two or three years ago. <laughs> and so we do yeah. have, we have plans for servicers to bring students out of postponement. Why is this yeah. being turned into such a massive deal? And that's, and that's, that's a good question because right. Like, 
like this this idea that that uh, you know loan payments were going to turn back on on October first of this year was announced at the end of January, beginning of February, almost six months ago. And so the fact that we are only like seventy days out, and there's been no communication with borrowers about what the plan is, and that the only real communication that we've seen to this point is some high-profile members of Congress who have you know trotted out the student loan servicers to hearings and you know, basically ask them what they're supposed to do when, again, they're contractors, they're contractors to federal student aid. And so instead of, instead of asking federal student aid, what the plan is right now, we're asking servicers or, you know, essentially contractors to tell us what's your plan to get everybody back in repayment again, without asking the people who are in charge of the contractors to say, Hey, what is your plan? And, you know, for me, this is something that I've said, and I will keep saying until somebody contradicts me, but, you know, I mean, Every single borrower who goes into repayment on a student loan uh, has a six-month grace period. Grace period is exactly the kind of vehicle that we need right now. You know, that somebody always has to start with knowing that they don't have a student loan payment and knowing that they do have one and they're going to have to make it. And the grace period exists so that a student borrower can get acclimated to, hey, uh, here's your payment. Here's the amount. Here are the resources you can use to pay it. That payment's coming in 90 days. That payment's coming in 60 days. That payment's coming in 30 days. Like borrowers get a lot of handholding as they transition from school into repayment. And I don't honestly see why we're just not doing that today with the existing pool of students. Um, everybody keeps saying, oh, it's too hard to get 41 million people back into repayment. No, it's not. It's not hard at all. As a matter of fact, all the tools to get people back into repayment already exist because every single year, new borrowers leave school, enter grace, and have a six-month period where yep. they're getting ramped up and built into the repayment cycle. So why can't we just use the tools that we already have to turn this whole thing back on? Totally agree with you. And I I think we're both making the same argument, just suggesting that they actually have multiple tools in which they can do this. Because the, yeah. the same thing is true of students coming out of deferment and forbearance. There is a means to turn these payments back on for students. And I don't understand why we're not just using a little bit of common sense and using one of of the paths to to repayment again that we already have in place instead of trying to create something new. Additionally, I just want to point out that the original legislation that paused student loan payments actually had outlined a plan for returning students to payment status. And there were a set of notifications there were guidelines for servicers about when they had to do those notifications, how they had to do them, how many of them had to occur. Mm-hmm. And I know it was happening because I got notices. Right, right. And so again, you're right. We're saying the same thing from, from, from two you know, similar line perspectives, but there's no reason why we can't turn payments back on. And, you know, it's been 18 months. Um you know, the economy may not be back to where it was pre-pandemic, but it's pretty far along. And mm-hmm. of all the groups that fortunately, in terms of getting back on their feet, it's going to be the people who have college training and college degrees. So student loan borrowers are probably in the ideal position to be um, starting those payments back up. And look, if there, if there are people who are still struggling, if there are people who are unemployed, if there are people who are like structurally jobless still, but have student loan debt, there's nothing to say we can't turn on the spigot for 30 million and like give that remaining 10 or five, a little bit of extra time. Nobody's saying well, we have mechanisms for this already. 
That's what exactly. income-based repayment is. That's what it's, unemployment deferment is. That's what that's what that's economic a, hardship is for. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And so I think the bigger, like the bigger question that's not being asked here is why are we not getting guidance or plans or structured public announcements at this point? Why is why are students not being communicated to at this point um, about something that is supposed to happen in 70 days when the president of the United States announced this back at you know the end of January, beginning of February? This is not a surprise. Nobody should no. be surprised that payments are starting on October 1st. Everybody was given nine full months to prepare for this. So this notion somehow that people are unprepared, they're not ready, the servicers don't know what to do. If any of this unpreparedness or inability to transition is happening, it's because nobody's getting guidance. Servicers aren't getting guidance. Student borrowers aren't getting guidance. How are people supposed to plan and prepare and act if the people in charge of the loan portfolio aren't giving anybody the, the signals and the communication that they need to know how to act? So yeah. a lot of finger pointing right now. And I just, I, I feel like we're not asking the right questions of the right people. The right question is why isn't this stuff being communicated and the right people is probably federal student aid at this point. Again, to your point, as you're outlining the the whole broader portfolio and all of the repayment options that we have, part of the reason that there's so much confusion and servicing is so hard is because of the overly complex and confusing volume of repayment plans that we have, processes right. around PSLF. They just, there's too there's too much complexity. If they would just simplify and piggyback off from processes already in place, the whole thing would be so much easier. Well, and I think that's a good transition from turning payments back on to loan forgiveness, right? Because you're right, there's a lot of programs out there that are designed specifically to make college repayment affordable and manageable. We have public service loan forgiveness. We have income-based repayment. We have a plan called pay-as-you-earn. We have a plan called revised pay-as-you-earn. We have a plan called income contingent repayment. Like you said, there are there are four or five different just income-based repayment plans alone. And so, you know, as we transition and start talking about the student loan forgiveness component, I think a core aspect of understanding student loan forgiveness is to recognize that the only way you can reasonably have student loan forgiveness is if you're willing to admit that all of these plans that have been put in place that are designed to make college, you know, borrowing more affordable have failed, right? Like you don't need, you don't need student loan forgiveness if you have a repayment plan that makes your monthly loan payments affordable. And you don't need loan forgiveness if you have um, loan forgiveness programs that are going to wipe out people's debt eventually. So if you're going to advocate for 10,000 or 50,000 or everybody's student loan debt to be wiped out, I mean, basically what you're admitting at the end of the day is that 15 years worth of uh, federal policy designed to make repayments easier and more manageable has all failed. Like it's all bad policy. So the same people that made those policies over the last 15 to 18 years were, we think they're going to be able to fix it. I think some people feel like this is the way forward. And, you know, I mean, let's let's call it what it is. Like the federal student loan program is the most 
unloan-like program that you could possibly imagine. There is no loan in the financial world that looks like the federal student loan program where, you know, you there's no underwriting and we're going to give you a year to be delinquent on your payments before you go into defaults. And if you do go into defaults, we're going to allow you rehabilitate your loan so that you can get it back into repayment again. And we're going to have these 15 different repayment style plans and some are going to have forgiveness and some are going to be income-based, like ask yourself if this was a feasible way to repay a loan, you would think that at least one other financial market would adopt these kinds of mechanisms and tools. And nobody does, right? Nobody does at all. So what we have is a loan program that it just increasingly doesn't look like a loan to begin with. So like I almost, it almost feels like a purposefully muddied disaster at this point. So a system that was set up to fail. I mean, that's kind of depressing. (laughs) <laughs> it is, but right, like, but, you know, we don't want to, I don't know that we want to talk about, you know, it's, it's really hard to, it's really hard to say, hey, people don't repay their student loan debt, but at the same time say, well, we're going to give loans to anybody without a credit check. I get it. In the old days, when student loans first started, there was this big chicken or egg problem. It was like, mm-hmm. How do you give an 18-year-old with no credit history a loan that's not going to be at such a high rate because they don't have a credit history, right? right. Chicken or egg problem. But today, for example, we talk about the fact that uh, non-traditional students, adults are the majority minority of the college-going population. Well, these aren't 18-year-olds with no credit history. Uh, a lot of adults have credit histories. They have credit cards. They have mortgages. They have auto loans. Like We already know what their credit profile looks like. So what do you do in a situation, and it's a hypothetical, but it's a good one. What do you do if Carlos Salerno has such a terrible FICO score, and yet you're still going to give him a loan anyway, right? Like, well, I already yeah, showed that I'm a bad risk, but we're still going to just give it to me without, you know, without any, any measure of like pressure. Well, of course we are, which is why we set limits. One of the ways that we've attempted to provide access to higher education is to not restrict someone's educational opportunity because of a bad credit score or no credit score. So I appreciate what you're saying that because of the way we've opened loans up, it opens the loan portfolio to additional risk that maybe a traditional market wouldn't see. Right. But without, but without, without some sanction, like I have no problem giving people loans and I have no problem giving people loans to advance their social mobility, but we still, you still have to have consequences for not paying those loans. You still have to do something to like get people to repay. And it's really hard to watch again, a system where, uh, you know, students have an entire year to miss their payments on their loans before it goes into default unfold and then be able to say, well, it's because they're struggling. And it's like, well, I don't understand how somebody's struggling if I'm going to give you an income-based, you know, uh, monthly payment where you only have to pay 50 or $75 a month and you're still not going to make a payment for an entire year. At a certain point, what are you supposed to do? Like you can't have one or the other. If If we don't want it to be a loan, let's not call it a loan. Let's just call it a shadow grant, right? Because that's what it feels like more and more, you know, it, the, the program doesn't behave like a loan anymore. So it's really hard to sit down and have this conversation about let's forgive student loan debt when we also recognize at the same time, we have been designing policy for years that's supposed to make student loan payment affordable. That's a failure. It's a 
been failure? Well, people either need to say that it's a failure or they need to say it isn't. Because there really is a component where for a lot of people, I think you said 33% of of students in repayment are on some type of income-based repayment plan. So there are a lot of people taking advantage of the program to reduce their loan payments. Sure. And and how we actually so so maybe how we're measuring what's a reasonable payment is that what you're saying is unreasonable in in the income based? No. What I so what I'm saying is that if we want to have something like loan forgiveness, you can't just have forgiveness and keep lending to people the day after under these same restrictions, or you're just feeding the beast that you're trying to quell at the same time. So if you want to forgive student loans. Like if I was, if I was a congressperson, you know, I would be in favor of forgiving student loans if we recognized that these current repayment programs that we have out there are failing and that we should redesign them as a result. Mm-hmm. If you want to forgive student loans, that's fine, but at least take the policy step of fixing the system instead of just keeping the broken system in place. Absolutely. Like you know, these are the kinds of things that we have to weigh. We can't just say, oh, we're going to offer student loan forgiveness, but we're going to let people keep borrowing at the same level that they are. And we're going to offer student loan forgiveness, but we're still going to run this income-based repayment plan or this public service loan forgiveness program that's not doing its job. Fix the things that are broken. I don't think that's a small uh, piece of compensation for a bigger for the bigger gain of loan forgiveness. No, and, and you're right. I read the other day that even if we forgave, was it all student loan debt that we would be back at the current the current debt level in 10 years? Yeah, something like that. I think it was 10, maybe it was 15. I can't remember the study either, but it's not far. Like a child born the day of forgiveness, by the time that child goes to college, loan debt will be back to where it was the day before he or she was born. You know what I mean, that's crazy. Yeah. Like that's really crazy. All we've done is just, transferred the debt problem to somebody 15, 16, 17 years down the road. That's not solving anything. That's just moving the pieces around the board and making somebody else bear the burden. No, and I agree with you 100% that forgiveness without actually fixing the current system in place does nothing for us as, as a society, does nothing for future students or, or current students really in, in the system, we need to, to address the problems that got us to the point that we are at today, or people need to, to admit that it's not broken and they, yeah. they kind of need to stop pushing this. Why do you think, I know that, I know the Biden administration sent over the request for review of their ability to, to forgive debt back shortly after coming into into power why right. do you think it's taken so long for for either something to be written up or for us to get any kind of access to that cuz we still haven't right yeah that's right and i think i think the prevailing wisdom amongst the you know the policy class the chattering class whatever you want to call them right is that you know the president probably understands at this point that they don't have any, uh, they don't have a strong case for executive authority to cancel student Mm. debt. I'm pretty sure if there was the ability to cancel student debt uh, by executive authority, 
uh, it would have been implemented already. Nobody would, nobody would let all of these millions of borrowers, again, less than 70 days away from payment, you know, fret about their upcoming student loan payments if there was a way to wipe out that debt. And so six months now of waiting to do a legal analysis on a very, very small component of the Higher Education Act, you know, I'm pretty sure that, you know, again, the answer's already been found. And, you know, the answer really is just that there's not much that can be done. And, you know, to be fair, President Biden, even on the campaign trail, didn't you know, didn't express enthusiasm for canceling debt by executive authority, right? He always yep. asked for Congress to do it. And so I think- what Good we luck with that. Yeah, but I, you know, but still like at least, at least from that point, he recognizes that if we're going to make giant fiscal moves and we're going to talk about forgiving hundreds of billions or trillions of dollars, right? The power of the purse lies with Congress. And so the power of like, forgiving that should probably lie with Congress as well. And so, yeah, I, I honestly, I honestly think that that the reason why we haven't heard anything is because uh, there isn't anything that can be done. And you know, the fact of the matter is, there's a lot of people who are going to be very angry and upset with that. And so, I feel like the plan B, if uh, you know, if you're in that situation, is probably to figure out, okay, I have to break the news to millions of people that they're not going to get their loans forgiven. So, what is what's the next best thing I can do? Extend the repayment pause, right? Yeah. Like there's a number of other things you're going to do. I think I think what we're looking at is the setup for the plan B, which is I can't forgive your student loans, but I can probably prolong payment, you know, repayment a little bit longer as a consolation prize. Yeah, there's only so long that they can delay, though, before it's going to start to impede the the perceptions of people as we pull into a, a next election cycle. And so yeah. I wonder, do you think they announce no on the forgiveness and then they push payments or do they do they push payments and then announce or do we just we just push pay, pay or do we make everybody start paying like carlo what's the over under on what's going to happen in october yeah i mean i don't think anybody i mean i don't know that anybody really knows but again if i had to guess i am sure that the student loan forgiveness and the What's going to happen on October 1st announcements are probably going to come together, right? Mm. It's going to be, this is, you know, you know, this is what we can or can't do. This is how we want to go forward. Here's what we can do to provide the most relief to the most Americans in the circumstances, you know, and I think at this point, the broader recognition is you're right. We can probably pause payments for just a little bit longer, you know, but we're going to reach a point where if we pause payments until March of 2022, that's two years of nobody making student loan payments. It's crazy. And you know what I find absolutely mind-boggling are all of these surveys that keep getting pulled out by, well, people keep doing them. And then the national media picks them up. And, and one the other day said that 68% of people asked who were, were in a pause about repaying said they said they weren't ready to begin repaying. Well, right. who is? Who's ready to, like, if you ask me, Amy, do you want to start, you know, here, go buy this new car. Do you want to start making the loan payment now or in six months? Right. Well, I don't want to start making it at all, but, right. you know, <laughs> but I guess if, six if, months. If the choice is between paying a bill and having that money to use it for something else, I'm always going to be not ready to pay the bill. <laughs> Absolutely. Right? And that's the thing. It's been so long already. Yeah that people have started reallocating those payments 
to other things. So when yeah. people say they need the money for housing, does that mean because they, and I'm, I'm not trying to be cynical here, but does that mean because they went and they bought a new house and now their mortgage is X amount more than it used to be? Or is it that the rent has gone up? You, I mean, right. I don't know. But but you're right that the question itself is the important one, which is by letting the payments continue to stay paused, we're creating a new level state where yes. lots of people who have college degrees and probably ostensibly could pay their bills are not. In the meantime, the case is continually being made that like every month that we go without repaying is another month to say, well, our lives are not accustomed to taking this hit. How do we suddenly make how do we suddenly make tens of millions of people, you know, retake on a 100, 200, 400, $600 a month payment and not expect that to adversely affect the economy at a certain point in time, the recognition that we're going to turn payments on is going to turn into a larger fiscal discussion of what's the economic impact is Mm -hmm. ending going to go down. Are durable goods going to go down? Purchase is going to go down. You know, what's, what's going to happen when we suddenly force hundreds of millions of dollars to go back to the federal government rather than go into people's pockets. When do we get too close to October 1 to actually turn them back on? Are we already there? Because we're yeah. not 90 days out. It feels like we're already there, that there's there's no choice. There's going to have to be an extra push because yeah. there's no communication with people who are in this payment pause right now. Right. It's 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 crazy to think that 60 days is not enough time to do something like this. But in practice, it's probably not enough time. You know, people who haven't been making their payments for a long time, you know, you have to find them again. You have to make sure you have valid addresses for them. You have to remind them of their payments. You have to get them to log back into portals or get them accustomed to budgeting for it. A lot of people are, uh, when those payments come back on, are not going to, you know, they they won't have gotten the communication. They would have missed the communication because who opens their paper mail anymore? And who opens an email sometimes? Yep. A lot of things that feel official, like even our junk mail, even our spam filters, it's like chuck them out of the way. So even under the smoothest circumstances, millions of people are going to have a hard time getting back into repayment on day one. And so 60 days is just, it's not enough time. Like 90 nope. is probably, 90 is probably the minimum magic. Minimum. Yeah. Like you need 90 days to get a campaign going, get everybody made aware of it make sure that people have chance to contact their servicer, get their questions answered. You know, the, those things take time on a typical scale. And when you're talking about, again, 41 million Americans, like that's a hard thing to do, but it's not impossible. Again, like we said at the top of, you know, at the top of this podcast, we already do that. Every yes. single person at some point goes from not having a student loan payment to having a student loan payment. And we have to figure out how to transition them into the repayment world. And we do it. We do it every single year, multiple times. Servicers know how to do this. Servicers specialize in this. You know, servicers have this down to an art. Like they're good at their job because they've been doing this for years. So yep. I don't know it's just over trying to tinker with something that we don't even need to tinker with. Because if we don't overcomplicate it and we, we don't establish new rules, people feel like they're not doing something. Yeah. So. I, I think that we've we've reached a couple of conclusions. There's nothing easy about turning the ship of the student loan portfolio. It's 
it's massive. It's complex. The servicing, our servicers and the servicing of these loans are equally as complex due to all of the repayment options that we have available, all of the deferment and forbearance options, and and potentially a significant simplification of this process is going to reduce a lot of the financial friction that our students are feeling after they leave college. And that in addition, the this, this whole idea of loan forgiveness, to your point, is probably a signal that we have some bad programs or some bad policy that was enacted. If we're we're really at a point where we feel the only allowable action to solve the student debt issue that we're currently facing is debt forgiveness, then our entire IDR and PSLF program um, and the income-based programs we've tried to establish in the past are complete and utter failures. And we need yeah. to find a new and creative way to solve that problem. Yeah. No, nobody's saying we shouldn't be making college uh, or, or borrowing for higher education uh, affordable and manageable. Uh, I think what we are saying, though, is PSLF is terrible. Income-driven repayment is obviously not achieving what we hoped, or else we wouldn't be having a conversation about forgiving all this debt because mm-hmm. people make their, make their manageable payments. So nobody's saying we shouldn't be helping borrowers out. I think what we're saying is that let's help borrowers out, but let's get rid of the baggage. These programs don't work. If these programs are administrative time sucks and are logistical nightmares and are not achieving what's intended, scrap them, do something different, like devote that time and resources and energy into creating something simpler and better and more effective. But this whole idea that we're going to forgive debt, but at the same time, leave these like really bad legacy uh you know, hardship solutions in place. That doesn't make any sense. If I had to summarize, I mean, there are people who deserve student loan forgiveness. There are people who've had a hard go of it. There are people whose economic circumstances, you know, probably would improve dramatically if they could, uh, if they if they didn't have that bill or that obligation or some of the struggles with it. But not everybody does. Again, college students and college mm-hmm. graduates are are better positioned than anybody else to repay the debt that they've, you know, taken on. But, you know, again, like you said, we have an overly complicated system. It's convoluted. It's difficult to understand. It's difficult to navigate. And so, you know, the idea that we're going to just, that the way we solve the complexity problem is to just throw in the towel and just forgive everything doesn't feel like the way you fix a problem. That feels like, that feels like throwing away a problem, right? And so I just, I don't know, I just feel like as a, ta- like the taxpayer in me says, you know, please do better with my money. On that note, I think that I think we both agree that we would like to see, you know, we would like to see some of the processes and learnings that we already have in place to restart the student loan program utilized as as the as the department and servicers look at re-implementing loan payments and encourage that we use processes that already work. And that as we look at going forward to to solve the problems we face, we have to address the issues of the past and the current system. And we need to rectify those, not just treating the symptom that we have of, you know, $1.6 trillion loan portfolio, but actually get to the root 
of the problems and, and what causes concern with that current loan volume and the current payment options available and simplify it for our students. So I want to thank everybody for joining us today. Hope that you enjoyed our conversation about the state of the student loan portfolio and the return to repayment, as well as the idea of student debt forgiveness. Again, would love to hear from from you, hear your feedback. Let us know what you think. Feel free to follow along and like our, our channel so that you get notifications about the next episode that we release. Is, is this a part where I ask if I can come back again? Oh, you can come back again. <laughs> yeah, I'll let you. I'll is it because my picture's on the, uh, on the logo? <laughs> I mean, it is going to be kind of hard to scrub you off. I'm going to have to get like a Photoshop guy to get you out of there. So I feel like that's that level of effort has earned you at least one more week. This is why I'm bald, so that people can draw hair on me and draw glasses <laughs> on me and do all those other things. Hey, this was I fun. Love- Thank you.